Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 to 17. I'll go ahead and read this for us. Let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's word. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for uh, your, your preserving and uh, your, your faithful uh, ministry to, to us through your word. Uh, and as we go through your word, uh, it's especially when we land on uh, difficult passages uh, that we are in a sense reassured uh, you are not a God created in our image. Um, you don't reflect us, and we are to reflect you, and we are to conform to you, and it is strangely a comfort, therefore, to find uh, how, how you correct us, how you uh, don't fit so neatly into our, our cultural uh, comfort zones and, and ideas and thoughts. Um, you are God. We are not. Um, and yet, Lord, we ask you help us to, to know you more, uh, to, to give us wisdom, to understand, um, so that we walk away today not with, not with a, feel, a feeling that, that is so fleeting uh, or, or an experience that can be so forgetful, but a truth, a truth that remains true, uh, no matter how we feel, no matter what we experience. Give us your truth. Um, and sanctify us according to your truth. We, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing in our uh, series in the book of Revelation, and, and uh, the vision that, that John saw um, uh, of, of the end of the world, and we've been seeing in the first four seals uh, what mainly um, happens on earth, but with the fifth and sixth seal, which is what... Uh, we read in our passage today, we see something happening, unfolding in heaven. And uh, I want to just make a couple of observations here that is purposed towards answering the the question that we said is very important when it comes to understanding Revelation, and that is answering why and what for and not when. The temptation in, in, in citing the book of Revelation is to constantly ask the question of when, uh, 
Instead, the, the proper way of approaching Revelation is to ask the question, why and what for? Jesus himself said, no one knows the when. You're not supposed to know the when. Stop asking the when. <laughs> Here's the what for and the why that you're supposed to focus on. So that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to make two observations about the vision. Um, first, an identification. Second, a vindication. Identification and vindication. And I just want to close with a third point, how the identification and vindication leaves us with a present mission. Okay, so point number one, identification. Point number two, vindication. Point number three, our present mission. So we go from seeing the vision, understanding the vision, to our mission. All right? So first, uh, point number one, identification. Uh, if you look at verse nine again, the fifth seal is opened. And this time, what's unfolding is happening on, not on earth, but in heaven. And it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Okay, there's an altar here. What is this altar referring to? Uh, if you look at chapters 8 and 9 later on in Revelation, this altar appears again. And it seems to represent the place where the throne of God is, where the presence of God is. This is not the altar of sacrifice in the Old Testament. Uh, which the author of Hebrews says, that system of worship has been abolished. It is ready to fade away in the coming of Christ. This altar in heaven is where Christ, the Lamb of God, who was slain, now sits upon like a throne and, and rules over his people by his mercy and grace. And those who have been slain, right? Um, where are they? They're under the altar. Right? And notice they're not on the altar as if it's, it's their sort of self-sacrifice and giving that got them there. They're under the altar. They're not what's offered on the altar. They're under the altar as if they're, they're enjoying the protection and provision of the one who, who sits on the altar on their behalf, and that's Christ. And Christ, his work on the cross that was performed on the church's behalf. Okay, now here's what the commentators, the theologians point out that's really important. The, the ones who have been slain, who are they? And uh, interestingly, most commentators agree this is not only applicable to those who had died what we would call today a martyr's death. Uh, uh, those who died while being physically persecuted and tormented for their Christian faith. Um, this, is, this description is not only limited to them. It's not only identifying them, but identifying all the saints all the people of God, all the members of God's universal church. And there's few reasons for this. And when you look at this in context, in the broader context of Scripture, one is, in verse 11, it says that these people were given white robes and were told to rest a little while longer. The white robes represent God's forgiveness, his justification, his purification, and his transforming of his people into his holy citizens in his kingdom. In the next chapter, in chapter 7, you see uh, those who wear the same white robes are actually the great multitude no one could number from all tribes and peoples and languages. The people, in other words, who wear the, the white robes are all the people of God, all throughout God's redemptive history. So the, that's one reason to consider the, those who are given white robes in chapter 6 as the same people in chapter 7, all the saints all throughout history. Second reason, um, the, the word slain that appears here 
actually first appeared in Revelation chapter 5, if you recall where the vision begins, and it says there that before the throne, before the living creatures and the others, stood the lamb as though it had been, what? Slain. And that is a reference to Christ and his death on the cross. And he stands still, although he's been slain. Why? Because he's resurrected, and now he lives, and he stands to rule on the throne forever. And now in Revelation 6, there are those who have been equally slain. Now, but does that mean that these people who have been slain are all who died the identical death that Jesus died, crucified, and, and on behalf of others, atoning for other sins? No. Christ is the ultimate, final sacrifice on behalf of sin who, can, who alone can atone for the sins of the world. So it can't mean that. So what does this mean? Who are these people who have been slain as Jesus has been slain? Uh, it is referring to all those who died a death not identical to Christ, but similar to his, similar to Christ. It's not the death of Christ, but a death like his. Or put differently, it is those who had died a death that Christ called them into. Christ called them to die. A death you die as you follow in the footsteps of Christ. And if you're wondering, when did Christ ever call anybody to die? Or here are a few sayings of Jesus. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Is there a call there to die? Absolutely. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Is there a call to die there? Absolutely. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Is there a call to die there? Yes. And I think the most and the clearest call to die is, is found in this call. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Did Christ call all of his followers to, to die this death? Death to themselves, death to the world, death to sin and temptation, death to the enemy, death to death. Yes, he did. Not just to a special few. He calls all of his followers to this death, to enter into his death, to be slain this way. He said it repeatedly. It was his way of identifying his people. And here, the same identification is found in the people under the altar of the Lamb. This is the people of God, therefore forgiven, adopted, have been commissioned, sent down to, into the world as God's light in the darkness, now gathered, brought home after the completion of their earthly mission in the presence of God. In other words, the identification here is, this is, this is us. This is the church. This is you and me. 
You and I are those who have been called to die the death that Christ has died, aren't we? The question is, have you died this death? Have you died to the world, died to sin and temptation, died to Satan, died to death itself, therefore the fear of death, so that you might live truly, eternally uh, unto God? Either, right, we see ourselves as part of this group under the, the protection and provision of the altar where the Lamb of God is, or you have to then fall outside of this protection of the Lamb for having refused him, refused the provision of the Lamb, and you fall in the latter category, as we see in the sixth seal, those who fall under the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb. If you're not under the protection of the Lamb, you refuse that, then you do end up on the altar. <laughs> you do have to pay for your own sins. And that's a terrifying reality. So this vision reminds us in a very sobering way that this is, this is where we want to be, under the altar of the Lamb. Not on top of it. Not having to pay for our sins ourselves. But under. Right underneath it. Under its shadows. Under its protection. The other thing that indicates this is identifying the church. All the saints, the and not just the visible members of the church, but the invisible, the true spiritual members of the church, is what they were slain for. Not, not just that they were slain, but what they were slain for. It says in the rest of verse 9, what were they slain for? For the word of God and for the witness they have borne. The witness they have borne. The Greek word for witness, which I was really surprised to find, is the word martyria. It's where we get the word martyr. The root meaning of the word martyr is not to die, but to bear witness, to have a testimony that you stick to and, and stick to and hold fast to even to the point of death. Right? Someone with a witness, someone with a testimony that, that they're willing to take to their grave, that's a martyr. Whether you do die that way or not, you have the you have the willing you have the conviction that if you were required to you're willing to take it to your grave. That's how convicted you are of, of that testimony and that witness. That's a martyr. And if you think about it, this is so consistent with what we know about our own Lord, Jesus Christ. What was it that angered the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin so much so that, they, that it led to Jesus' crucifixion? It wasn't it Jesus' testimony. His witness. I am the Christ. and You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And they tore their garments and condemned him to death for blasphemy. Right? Jesus took his martyria, his witness, his testimony, and, and, and he took him, to him with him on, on this hill called the skull, and he, he died on that hill. And after his resurrection on the third day, just before his ascension, what does he say to all of his followers? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Same Greek word, martyria, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Did Christ call all of us, therefore, to be martyrs? Absolutely he did. To carry a testimony that you're so convicted of that you'd be willing to take to your grave. That's what Christians are. People with a conviction and a, and a witness and a testimony that they're willing to take to their grave. In other words, 
There is a hill that you and I ought to be willing to die on. It's your testimony about Christ and his salvation. That's the only hill you should be willing to die on. Don't die on any other hill, any other identification, right? Only this, only your testimony in Christ. Be willing to die on that hill. Is that too extreme? No, and here's why. Here's a reason why this is not extreme at all. Did you know that technically, technically, um, every minute we live is also every minute that we die. We're dying as we speak. Do you know that, right? We're decaying. We're aging. Uh, as, we, as we move forward in life, we're moving forward towards our grave. You know that. Meaning, as soon as you say, I have found something worth living for, what you're also saying at the same time is you have also found something you are considering worthy of dying for. To live for something, to give your life to something, really is qualitatively speaking to die for it too. Because every minute you live is also a minute you are dying. In living for something, we're also being martyred for it. And people outside the Bible have expressed this repeatedly. John Keats, the, the English poet from the Romantic period, he wrote this. I have been astonished that men could die martyrs for their religion. I have shuddered at it. I shudder no more. I could be martyred for my religion. Love is my religion, and I could die for that. Right? Spoken like a romantic poet. Love is my religion, and I could die. I could be martyred for that. Right? He's saying, I may not be as fundamentalistic about a religion, but I am fundamentalistic about something, and I'll die for that thing. I'll live for it, and I'll die for it. Charles Bukowski, he's a novelist, and he the German-American uh, novelist, he put it slightly differently, a little crudely perhaps, but he makes the same point. He wrote, my dear, find what you love and let it kill you. <laughs> find what you love and let it kill you. Let it drain of your all. Let it cling onto your back and weigh you down into eventual nothingness. Let it kill you and let it devour your remains. For all things will kill you, both slowly and fastly, but it's much better to be killed by a lover. I mean, this is not Christian literature. Right? Or take this example, more more modern example. I'd catch a grenade for you. Throw my hands on a blade for you. Right? Bruno Mars. Statements like this are all over our literature, philosophy, ethics, politics, creative arts. Right? It's not at all exclusive to Christianity. This is a universal human intuition. When you find something you consider worth living for, you consider it at the same time worth dying for, worth becoming a martyr for. We're born to be martyrs. Born to find something worth living for and therefore worth dying for. So the question is not whether you will be martyred for something. The question is for what? We're all going to be martyred for something. We're going to die for something because we're living for something. The question is for what and for whom and is it worth it? Will it give you life? The invitation of Christ and his gospel is to lay your life down for him and live for him, and he will make you live forever. The identification of a Christian is someone who has embraced this destiny and this calling. Say, I am a bearer of, of tes a testimony for Christ, a martyria for Christ, and, and, and Christ is my comfort in life and therefore my comfort in death, as we just read in the catechism.
Elizabeth Elliot, the, the widowed wife of the missionary Jim Elliot, who was literally martyred the moment he landed in the jungles of Ecuador, she wrote later, is the distinction between living for Christ and dying for him so great? Is not the second the logical conclusion of the first? Is the distinction between living for Christ and dying for Christ so great? Isn't the second the logical conclusion of the first? Well, she's figured it out. <laughs> to live for something is to die for something. And to die for Christ, therefore, is the logical conclusion of living for him. You may not be living for Christ and dying for Christ. The question is, what are you living for and what are you therefore dying for and is it worth it? Christ says, I am worth it. Live for me and die for me. And if you're wondering, I'm not sure. I thought I was living for Christ, but now that you put it that way, I don't know if I'm actually living for Christ. Am I willing to die for Christ? I'm unsure. How do I know? Here's how you know. Here's the answer. It's sort of a diagnostic question for you. And this comes from the fifth seal. Do you, like them, carry the word of God in you and the testimony of Christ and his salvation in you? And are you willing to take that testimony to your grave? Is your testimony concerning Christ the hill that you're willing to die on? That's how you know. Do you even have a Christ-centered testimony regarding your salvation? So a, a quick side application here, to have this testimony and, and then to hold on to it and, and then to articulate it and to redraft it, edit it as your faith matures over time is probably the most important thing you can do ever. Because <laughs> the, the only qualification here for falling under the altar of the Lamb is whether you have that testimony or not. Do you have that testimony? That's all it requires. Having the Word of God in you and your testimony about Christ. A story that expresses, in other words, your faith in Christ. So I would, I would really recommend that, that you all spend a chunk of this, day, this Lord's Day working on your testimony. Grab a notebook and pen, go to a park, find a solitary space, draft your testimony. Spend the whole afternoon on it. Do this. Peter said, right, work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? If you don't work out anything, right, that, that that ought to make you a little uneasy. I want to encourage you to start here. Work out your salvation by working out your testimony. Make that your first step. Because your testimony is your, is your witness. It's your martyria. It's, your, it's the story that reassures you of your belonging under the altar of the Lamb. You're being able to identify yourself with all the saints at the end of the world. Have a testimony. Point number two. Uh, there's something that must follow after this identification, that is the vindication, vindication. And that's what the, the latter part of this vision is about. The verse 10 says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, first of all, those who dwell on the earth, this is the third reason why the first group is, is really 
considered to be all the saints because the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, those who are remaining, means those who have chosen to make their this world, this present world, and therefore worldliness, their dwelling place, their residence, their default mode of living. All the, all the ways in which the, 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 the scriptures describe worldliness, they, they make their home. Life of materialism, greed, sensuality, selfish ambition, fame, success, recognition, all the things that will be judged and become a thing of the past, those who make their dwelling there, make their permanent residence there, that's what this group is referring to. Okay, then why is this plea here to judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Because if you live as God's witness on the earth and witness to these people dwelling, making their dwelling on the earth, they will hate you for it. To live as God's witness on the earth, on this side of heaven, necessitates your suffering injustice, mistreatment, and, and suffering as a result of delayed vindication. It is to be misunderstood, mocked, and hated by those who love to dwell on the earth. Why? Because the gospel you preach tells them, stop loving the world. To, to a people who are accustomed to making themselves their, their master and commander, you're telling them, step down from your throne and make Christ your king. And to someone who, who loves something and, and has has already established their own king, to tell them to dethrone that king and to stop loving their lover, that's, that's a declaration of war. That's your relationship to the world. Therefore, the gospel of Christ and, and those who preach it, witness to it, are naturally, necessarily, uh, either feared, rejected, mocked, ridiculed, hated, or persecuted and killed by the world. Maybe we see a more subdued version of this for some of us in, in, in our context, whether that's societal alienation, ridicule, right? Christians are ridiculed all the time in our society. Or whether that's um, relational uh, isolation, loss, emotional abuse, financial loss, job loss. The point is to follow Jesus and to proclaim him in this world means you will necessarily live in some kind of a deficit and disadvantage. You must embrace that. And if you turn that around, what, what, what that also means is if the world loves you and there is no friction between you and the world, the, the only logical conclusion to that is you are not a witness. You are not a witness. Not of this gospel, not of this Christ. To, to live as a witness is to live, as a, live in a constant state of disadvantage. Whether that means a more subdued version of persecution and discrimination or something more large scale. Did you know that currently, in this very moment, uh, the biggest human rights issue in the world today is the persecution of Christians around the world? Uh, just on a purely statistical level, not, not on some subjective emotional level. It's to the point where the United Nations have recognized it. 
that the persecution of Christians is the, is the most um, uh, serious um, human rights violation religious of a religious group in the world. Some reports say that it is close to genocidal levels. It's that systematic and widespread. It's foreign to us, our experience here in Atlanta, Georgia, right? Bless our hearts. But it is true more broadly and more objectively speaking, the world hates Christianity. Just last year, 2021, 2021, there have been 4,761 Christians killed for their faith, 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings attacked, not just closed down, attacked. 4,277 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned, and over 340 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination that we know of. The country that persecutes Christians more than any other country in the world is still North Korea. And it's shocking to consider that the distance between North Korea and Seoul, South Korea, is only about 35 miles. Did you know that? That's here to Lake Lanier. It's so close to us. So visible if you only care to look. Um, But I think we are, I am, intentionally blind to this darkness. We're, We're too often distracted and numb to that kind of darkness, that kind of evil and that kind of pain and that kind of suffering because there's too much to enjoy and love and secure in this world. There's so much to love and enjoy about our current way of life. But guys, let's be reminded of what the Bible says. Do not love the world or the things in the world, because if you do, the love of God is not in you. You you can't be the light or love the light if you love the darkness. I think we we suffer from this, this spiritual amnesia due to the allure and temptation that comes from our world to make life's aim, ultimate aim, about avoiding as much suffering as possible and prolonging our life on earth as long as possible. And yet, the Bible says we can be fellow heirs with Christ in his kingdom provided we are willing to suffer with him. Those two are, those are headed in two different directions, aren't they? I'm going to avoid as much suffering as I can. I must suffer with Christ in order to inherit the kingdom of God. Those are two separate agendas, contradicting agendas. And and I hope this will give you some comfort. Actually, as you consider it, if you really think about it, as much as we might try, there really is no way of avoiding suffering on this side of heaven, in this world riddled with sin. We are living in inevitable suffering, if you really think about it. We all are. But here's what's unique about the calling of Christ. Through Christ, now there is a way for us to suffer and not suffer as though there is no meaning in that suffering. 
Not suffer as if there is no hope for us when we enter into that suffering. Not suffer as if there is no vindication at the end. Because there is. According to our text today, according to this vision, God's judgment is that vindication. If you acknowledge him, he will acknowledge you. That is your vindication. And if you've suffered wrong, if you've suffered unjustly, when God, by his judgment, rights all wrongs, that is your vindication. And we talked about briefly last Sunday, this idea of God's righteous judgment is only undesirable to those privileged enough to be sheltered from the many evils and sufferings of this world that make God's judgment seem unnecessary and excessive. It takes a certain amount of privilege to think that. Oh, judge, that's so judgmental. But that says more about our privileged state than about God's judgment. That we're, we're partially immune, blind to evil and suffering in the world. That makes us think, yeah, God's judgment seems a little too much. But while it may be excessive and, and unnecessary for the privileged few, it is not so for those who suffer injustice, suffer evil, and persecution. For the, for the girls who are dragged out of their homes by Hindu nationalists for their Christian faith, for those who are beaten unconscious every day in North Korean prison camps for their Christian faith, for the, the pregnant girls who refuse to give up their children to Boko Haram in Nigeria, for the parents who lost their children during worship at church as bombs exploded on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. For them, the judgment of God is their only comfort. It's their hope. Music to their ears. And if we are to fully identify with the, the people of God who rest under the altar of the Lamb, we have to... We have to learn to long for this vindication as well. This has got to matter to you. That I am suffering for Christ and this is the vindication I need and I want and I long for. This is my hope. This is my comfort. That although I'm not vindicated now, one day I will be. If you are a witness for Christ, you bear the testimony for Christ, this vindication has to be your hope. At the least, you have to learn to long for this vindication. Grow in your longing for this vindication. This is what I believe this vision is trying to wake us into. Can you identify yourself with the people under the altar of the Lamb? And do you therefore long to be vindicated as they long to be vindicated? Is their prayer your prayer? O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long? And, and if so, um, there's just now pres a very present mission that you can now embark upon. Uh, I want to close this final point with just giving you two relevant verses that, that I think ties very well with our, our passage today. And the first is Romans 12, verse 19, where it says, 
Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, I mean, that's a neat little summary, isn't it, of what we just heard and seen in this vision. Never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God. God says, vengeance is mine. Okay, so if we're not to avenge ourselves, retaliate against our enemies, how else are we to treat them? What's, what's our relational dynamic then? Here's the second relevant verse. And this is where we get the mission in the present moment. Matthew 5, 43. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. There's a time to pray against them. It's not now. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So, in other words, now that you have the identification as sons of your Father in heaven and the vindication promised to you on the day of judgment, make it your mission now to love your enemies, to forgive your enemies, to pray for your enemies, whether they are your neighbors, family, friends. Make it your mission now in this present moment to love them and to, to be gracious towards them. And the, the good news here, guys, is not that you should do that. The good news is you can. With this new, newfound identity as Christ's people and his followers and the promise of vindication that is coming, and it's terrifying. God's, it is a fearful thing to fall under the hands of the living God, right? Hebrews 4, I think 13. Now that you have both, right? Don't make, stop making it your life's mission to get even with people. Uh, stop making it your life's mission to go out and justify yourself and vindicate yourself and prove yourself to the world. That will only make you miserable. It will not free you, but only enslave you further. Now that you have this newfound identity and promise of vindication, go on this mission. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Vengeance is the Lord's. It's not yours. Your mission is to not get even, get justified, have your day in court. Your mission is to carry your cross and follow Christ. Deny yourself. Carry your cross. Live as Christ lived. The good news is not that you should do that, but that you can. You can. You can carry within you a testimony that you're willing to take to your grave. That's the good news. Not that you should, but that you can. I want to close with prayer now, but I want to invite you to sort of reflect with me a little bit briefly just before I, I go into prayer. Would you close your eyes with me as I pray um, and take a brief moment to reflect with me? Try to see something with me. 
try to see uh, what, what John showed us in this vision. See that you've been given a white robe that symbolizes your perfect justification in the eyes of God. You're clothed with this white robe that represents your perfect justification, righteousness, and acceptance before the throne of God. And it comes to you as God's free gift given to you uh, when you were most undeserving, offered to you not once, not twice, countlessly, ceaselessly, and it's, it's come to you. See yourself at the end of the world clothed in this white robe, loved and forgiven. And seeing that is your destiny now, consider yourself, see yourself in this present moment, in the here and now. And consider that your mission now is not to go out and find another white robe to cover yourself with, to justify your life with. You're not out there to be in need, to be needy, but to meet the needs of others. You're out there with a mission. You're empowered by Christ to therefore draw near to the people closest to you, nearest to you, who need this grace. Who is someone in your life uh, that needs uh, this forgiveness and this grace from you? Not once, not twice, but countlessly. And, and so undeserving of it at the same time. Will you picture yourself clothing them with your grace? Picture yourself approaching them while carrying your cross. Picture yourself walking towards them even though in the past you have isolated them or distanced yourself from them because it was so inconvenient. It was annoying. It was irritating to, to draw near to them. But now you draw near with, with the cross on your back. Now you're willing to suffer for them. Now you're on a mission. Who are these people? What are their names? See them. They are your mission from God. So, Father, we thank you for showing us this vision, the vision of what is to come, vision of our identification and our vindication, and clarifying for us, therefore, our present mission. Lord, send us. Help us to embrace the call to live for you and therefore to die for you. And, and would you help us, give us the wisdom to abandon all alternative things that are not worth living and dying for and pursue you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so fill our, our present moments, fill our lives with the beauty of this gospel, the beauty of grace and the love of Christ. Lord, give us our testimony. Help us articulate it. And let it be so embedded deep 
in our hearts, we, we would be sure uh, we are willing to take it to our grave. Give this uh, faith to us, Lord, by your grace. And we ask all of this in Christ's merciful name. Amen.